You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We will be in the Philippians passage today, so if you'll turn back a couple of pages and we'll bounce around from the lectionary passages, at the very least conceptually. I'm going to read the passage one more time so it's kind of front of mind so you can hear it another time so you can pick out some words or concepts maybe that stick out to you so that you can just get a little more familiar with this before we speak about it a little bit tonight. So this is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. In the December of 2000, a movie came out called The Emperor's New Groove. This is like the formative movie of my grade school years. Like this is the movie that we'd always watch the day before winter break or spring break when teacher didn't really want to do anything. Uh, but you couldn't just like sit there and they'd wheel in that big TV, you know, with like the box on the back and it had like the airplane seat belt going over the top of it to keep it on the cart. And we'd watch the Emperor's New Groove. And in that movie, we meet this young ruler, an emperor, coincidentally, named Cusco. Now, Cusco is uh, stereotypically a young emperor. He's everything that you expect to see in a young man with a whole lot of authority, and yet at the same time, everything you hope not to see in a young man with authority. He's merciless. He treats all of his constituents horribly. Uh, there are scenes in the beginning of the movie where he sends peasants away penniless. He shows no mercy and compassion to the people that he rules over, right? And so, Nobody feels all that great about Cusco. Okay, he uh, has alienated his constituents, and he's alienated some of the people in his court. He's made himself some enemies, specifically a horrifying old woman named Isma, and her henchman Kronk, uh, who's about as smart as you would uh, imagine he is. So, um, in the movie, though, we see Isma and Kronk dispossess Cusco of his throne because they're ambitious themselves. They want to rule over the people, but even more than that, Cusco himself is not a likable figure. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator in more ways than one. Now, that story's cute in a cartoon movie, but it's a a story and an image of a king and a ruler that we know all too well, this side of glory, right? You don't have to look that far back into history to find rulers who are very similar to Cusco uh, in real life, right? There are no cartoons, but you find arrogant, merciless rulers who lack compassion. And it's rulers like that who throw into stark relief 
the image that we see today in all these passages, but especially this Philippians passage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not of a merciless ruler, but a ruler who is mercy itself. Not of a ruler who fails to understand and care for his constituents, but of a ruler who comes to earth to die for his people. Right? We see a ruler who is not arrogant, but who is the height of humility today. So, while Cusco gripped his authority with an iron fist, Jesus, according to Paul in Philippians, let his go to come to earth to save us. So this is the picture of a good and gracious and gentle and compassionate ruler that we have before us today in this Philippians passage. Now, before we pray, by way of introduction, would be remiss if I didn't just make a quick comment about verse 7. This passage is oftentimes called the kenosis passage. Uh, The word in verse 7 for emptied is the Greek word kenao. And um, it's probably not an overstatement to say that heretics in the history of the church have read this to mean that Jesus left his deity, his divinity, this divine nature in heaven to come down to earth, operated strictly as a human. Um, This is not at all what this passage is teaching. Um, For example, if you'll look in verse... uh, Eight, we read, and being found in human form, uh, that's the same Greek word morphe that's used up in verse 6, right? So if Jesus is in human form, he is also preexisted in this divine or godly form uh, in the same way that he was a real human. He is really and truly God. He never leaves that divinity. He never leaves that deity. He doesn't ditch it up in heaven to pick it up later when he's seated at the Father's right hand. Now this matters Because if Jesus is just a man, his sacrifice means nothing for you and me. If Jesus is just a man, all he's done is live the life he was supposed to live for his own self. If Jesus is not God, his life and his sacrifice are not worthy to save us. But praise God, Jesus has always existed and will always exist, not only in the form of a servant, in the form of a man with his human nature, but also hypostatically unionized with that his divine nature. So I wonder if you would uh, pray with me and for me before we get started in earnest here. Lord, you be with us as we think about your word. Be with us as we read it. Open our eyes to love or open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you and open our hearts to love you. In your son, Jesus Christ, now we pray. Amen. I want to tell you a quick story about a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther. In the 16th century, Martin Luther was on the path, uh, funded and subsidized by his father, to become a lawyer, right? This is kind of a socially prestigious uh, career path and um, one that's a lot more lucrative than being a monk. But one night, Martin Luther finds himself on the road in the middle of a thunderstorm, and without James Spann to tell him to get in or out of the polygons or to enter his safe space at the right time, uh, Martin Luther drops to his knees, prays, not a bad idea, but he prays to St. Anne, uh, not a great idea, to deliver him from the storm. Now, of course, Martin Luther is delivered from the storm. So, 
Part of his bargain with St. Anne was that if he came through the storm, he would give up his life of privilege and prestige and pursue a life given to God in the monastic order. So into the, not convent, into the monastery he goes and he spends all day and night reading God's word, reading the Bible, and he comes face to face with the Bible's picture of his own sinfulness, right? It's a good thing. The Bible's very clear about this. Uh, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Uh, throughout from Genesis 3 all the way through Paul's letters, we see over and over again the sinfulness of humanity. The problem for Martin Luther, though, was when he saw his own sinfulness seated before a holy and righteous God, he found himself with an incomplete picture of who God is. You can find in Martin Luther's early writing, and especially in some of his more autobiographical stuff, him saying that he hated the righteous God. See, Luther in himself saw nothing but sin, and in his God he saw nothing but righteousness and thus condemnation. Martin Luther's view of God was woefully incomplete. Martin Luther had only harsh thoughts of God. His understanding of God's holiness wasn't untempered in any way by his understanding or a biblical understanding of God's love. I think if all of us are honest, we probably found ourselves in situations where we can relate to Martin Luther, right? You find yourself in a season where you seem to commit the same sins over and over again or where you struggle with the same things for so, so long. This is an issue that you just cannot break through, right? Confronted with your own sinfulness in the Bible, you see nothing but God's holiness and righteousness. Your vision tunnels in on that and you wonder, man, how can God continue to forgive me? How can God continue to love me despite what I am, what I continue to be. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one who feels that way. But I think all of us probably have seasons where we wonder, like Martin Luther, how holy and righteous God can approach us. The answer is here in Philippians chapter 2. I think if there's one passage in the entire New Testament that puts to flight harsh thoughts about God... Philippians 2, 5 to 11 has got to be one of them. In this passage, we see such a rich and robust picture of a loving, humble, compassionate, long-suffering God in Jesus Christ. There's no option but to see the Lord Jesus as somebody who loves you, even perhaps especially in those seasons of struggle and sin. So, that being said, let's point our eyes to Christ together as we look at this passage real quick. We see a Jesus in this passage who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be taken advantage of. Jesus didn't say, I'm God. There's no reason or way I'm stepping down into that filthy, miry, nasty, sinful world. It's the furthest thing from Jesus' imagination. We see him emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbling himself, the king of the universe, by becoming obedient 
even the life giver himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had something amazing with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he left it. How exactly that works, what exactly that looked like, uh, this side of glory, I don't think anybody knows, but what we can say for sure is that the Son's life with the Father and the Holy Spirit sands all the difficulty of sinful humanity. It's almost certainly better, almost certainly something that you'd not want to leave for the dirt and grime of this world. And yet, this Jesus undertook to come into our world. To be born in a feeding trough, right, into a world that has no room for him, it's fitting that he's born at an inn that doesn't even have room for him. To live a nomadic life, not in a palace that he certainly deserves, plated with gold or anything like that, but in tents and teepees around northern Israel. Only to be unjustly accused and hung on a cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ did all of this for you and for me. Jesus doesn't come to earth to kind of do this whole dance for kicks and giggles. He does this because he loves you. He does this because you and your name are in his mind from eternity past. He's thinking of you, if you're united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, when he comes to earth, right? Martin Luther said that when you read things that Jesus does in the Gospels, you should read them as if he is doing them explicitly for you. Jesus doesn't walk in to the wilderness for 40 days and wander around because he needed to cut a few pounds before beach season, okay? Jesus doesn't hang on the cross because he's looking for some stoic self-development exercise. Jesus is doing all of this because he's created you for himself, right? The whole Bible is this storyline of God's people running from him and him chasing them down, even to the point of death, death on a cross. This is the Christ we see in this passage. It's the Christ that we see cruising into Jerusalem on a donkey on this Palm Sunday. It's this Jesus to whom we're united by the Holy Spirit, and it's this Jesus in whom we have no condemnation, according to Paul in Romans 8.1. It's this Jesus, this Jesus of Philippians 2, who is our older brother, our sacrifice, our priest, our prophet, and our king, who will one day, per verses 9 through 11, exhibit his perfect rule over the whole entire earth. Right? Jesus' first coming, he exercises his rule and his humility. There's coming a day when Jesus will exercise his rule as every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, all the bad things become untrue. This Jesus, because of who he is and what he has done, has saved us not just from the penalty of our sins, but from our sins themselves. He saved us not just from the guilt that we've incurred, but he saved us to something as well. <clears throat> if you'll notice in verse 5, there's a command. Paul says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
See, verses 6 through 11 sort of undergird that command. They're the foundation for that command. In context, it's as if Paul is saying, because Jesus is who he is in verses 6 through 11, because he's done what he's done in these six verses, now you are free to have this mind among yourselves. Other translations will say, have this attitude among yourselves, have this manner of life among yourselves. See, Jesus' work doesn't just start and end at the moment that he draws you to himself, at the moment at which you come to know him, at the moment at which you're saved by him. Jesus' work doesn't stop then. Earlier in this very book, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul will say that he who has begun a good work in you will certainly bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This, my friends, is the, is the Christian life, is <clears throat> something that Jesus has given to us and gifted to us and walks us through throughout the course of our lives. This will never end from now until glory or until Jesus comes back, whichever one comes first. But it's important to get this relationship right. The indicative, right, these factual statements of verses 6 through, six through 11 have to be the foundation of the imperative, verse 5, to have this manner of life among you, to have this mind of Christ among you, to have this attitude among you. The indicative has to precede the imperative. But the imperative is still there. And that's a good thing I would submit to you. Because when Jesus saves you, he saves you to a new manner of life. You are in a very real sense per 2 Corinthians, a new creation. And as a new creation, you're gifted a new Savior and a new manner of life. And friends, this is like way better than anything that the world has on offer. Anything else that would like to play the role of Messiah in your life cannot bear the weight such an obligation. Right? <clears throat> the world will say things like, do this and live. Chase this number in your bank account and live. Chase this job title and live. Chase this family situation and live. Chase this number of kids and live. Chase this house, this street address and live. But the gospel will say to you in Christ's voice, I have done this and now you are alive. I think we can amend John Bunyan's famous quote, which might or might not have actually been said by him. He said, <clears throat> Run, John, run, the world commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Much sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me to fly, and it gives me wings. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.